0: Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father. Sanctify them by means of truth. Your word is truth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin our study of His word today. Our Father, we come together today to focus upon Your word. We are told in Scripture that Your word is alive and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. And it is a discerner of our thoughts and our intentions. Father, as your, we study your word, we should be pierced by it. In Second Timothy 3.16, Paul tells us that your word has been breathed out by you for the purpose of teaching, for rebuke, for correction and instruction in righteousness. None of us should get off today without being challenged by what we ought to be doing and what we ought not to be doing, and what our priorities in life should be. And Father, we pray that we might not be insensitive or callous to what God the Holy Spirit is teaching us, but that your word would produce in our lives that which is necessary for spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this morning we're coming together and we're going to be looking at the next part of our uh, spiritual skills that Scripture has defined for us in a number of different ways, skills, skills that are necessary for spiritual growth. They are not necessary for salvation. This is a huge mistake that is often made in the study and teaching of God's Word, is confusing passages that are written to teach us how we should live after we are saved, Uh, with those that are teaching us how to be saved. As a result of that, people become confused as to the role of works, that is, uh, the obedience to God. Works just basically summarizes the application of the Word of God. Often when people hear the word works, they think of doing good deeds, they think of charitable deeds, they think of um, overt actions. But works have to do with mental actions as well as external actions. And in Scripture we are told that works have absolutely nothing to do with our salvation, our justification, for we are saved by faith alone, Scripture says, not by works. And so we are looking at these passages today in a continuation of our study. Now, as we begin this today, I want to review a little bit as to why I am taking the time to go through this topical study on the spiritual skills in the midst or at the beginning of this section we find ourselves in, in Ephesians chapter 4. And so you might want to turn there before we go to some other passages And we have paused at this in relation to the first two verses in this section, Ephesians 4.25 and 26. In 4.25, we have a classic example of how the Bible is often mistranslated. Not only is it mistranslated, but it is often misunderstood because of mistranslations and it's misapplied. Now, this is a complex verse in the Greek to translate, and there is controversy and debate over the grammar. But in my thinking and study, it's pretty clear what it should be. And there are, what happens is translators all bring to the text their theology, their background, uh, etc. And so we always have to be aware of that. I think one of the most egregious examples that I have run into is the new international version which Wayne House likes to call the new international commentary because it is more of an interpretation than a translation and the interpreter has a pretty poor understanding of the spiritual life and if in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 which is a foundational verse he translates the word the greek word sarks which means flesh it references the sin nature and he translates it as worldly, which is the translation of the Greek word cosmos. And worldliness is totally different from fleshiness. Someone of the flesh has to do with the sin nature. Of the world has to do with the philosophies and religions and the way of thinking of the unsaved world. And there's a big difference between those two concepts. Well, we run into that kind of a problem here, except it's a little more difficult to deal with the Greek in Ephesians 4.25, but I've gone through this, so let me quickly review this. Therefore, it is translated, putting away lying. Now, putting away lying sounds like it's something we're to be doing now. It isn't. That's not what it says in the original. Putting away lying, ing is a participle or gerund in English. It's not a participle or gerund in the Greek. It is a noun with a definite article, which is left out here. And then the command quoted from the Old Testament, that's why it's in quotes, "...let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another." Now, this word putting away is the word apatithemi in the Greek, and it's an aorist participle. Now, I know some of that goes past you, but it's a past tense, one of the two, uh, three past tenses in Greek. And it, 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 grammar says that, that if the if it's a past tense and the main verb, here it's an imperative, is a present tense, the action of the past tense goes before the action of the present imperative so it should be translated uh, it should be translated for this reason because you have already put off the lie. see the word there in Greek is a noun with an article it is the lie. it's not that you're putting off you are to be putting off lying it's not talking about that. It is that when we got saved, as we studied, we put off the old man, which is all that we were before we were saved, but it's more than that. It is our identity in Adam, and that the new man is our identity in Christ. How do we know that? Because these terms are only used by Paul. And in Ephesians chapter 2, around verse 17 or 18, he says the new man is this new entity in the church age, the church, that is made up of Jew and Gentile together in one new man. So the new man refers to this new identity in Christ, and the new man refers to who we are now that we are believers in Christ. It doesn't refer to... Um, uh, that each of us individually is now a new regenerate person. Although that is true, that's not what that means. So when you come to this passage and the context, it it talks about four verses earlier that we have already put off the old man and we have put on the new man. That's our new identity in Christ. We are in the church. It says, for this reason, this is drawing a conclusion. And this conclusion is based on what precedes it, starting in verse 17. Verse 17 says, this I say therefore. So there's a conclusion drawn there. That he's building an argument. Verses 1 through uh, 6 or 7. Uh, excuse me, verses 1 through uh, 14, or 16, rather, are one section. You can subdivide it, but that's beyond our purpose this morning. And he says, as a result of this, therefore, that's what therefore means. Whenever you see therefore, you have to see what it's there for. It's drawing a conclusion. So in verses 17 to 24, it explains the rationale for the command, which is uh, that we should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles, that is unbelieving Gentiles, as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Walking is a metaphor for everything we do in the way we conduct our life, how we think, how we talk, and how we act. So verses 17 through 24 explains the rationale for that. And I could summarize it this way. Do not live like the rest of the Gentiles. Their position from birth is in Adam. But you are now in Christ. So you should live according to this new man, this new identity, by having your thinking renewed by Scripture. That summarizes 4.17-24. to That's talking about our new life. And then verse 25 is going to have another therefore, but it's a different word in the Greek. So a common mistake is to confuse passages that talk about how we walk with how we got there in the first place. To talk about that it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about how a person should think, talk, and act after salvation And it's not talking about what is required for salvation. Why? Because we have many passages that tell us that works do not enter into salvation. So what we're going to see this morning is that salvation is not by works, but it is for the purpose, the potential, Of good works in the life of the believer. And that's in verses 8 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. Second thing we're going to see is that all Christians, everyone who has believed that Christ died for their sins, every believer is going to be evaluated, not for salvation, but they are going to be evaluated on how they did in living the christian life and it's not just an evaluation to give us a report card so god can point out where we failed sins were paid for by christ on the cross the point of the evaluation is to demonstrate how we grew spiritually and how we developed a capacity for future responsibilities when we return with the lord and he establishes his kingdom it's not for getting there that we're at the judgment seat of Christ is because we are saved. And the issue is not does not have anything to do with losing salvation, as we will see. Third thing we'll see is that all who believe in Christ are saved eternally, but not all receive rewards. Fourth, all run the race, but some are disqualified which doesn't mean they lose their salvation. It means they don't win the reward. The prizes that are offered, the crowns that are given in the race, are analogous not to eternal life, but to positions and privileges that come as a result of our spiritual capacity. So let's start at the beginning that salvation is not by works, but for good works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that by grace through faith salvation. Now, the reason I say that is because you'll run into people who say that that is the faith, and that's the gift of God, but that doesn't work because the pronoun in the Greek, the word that, is a neuter, and the noun for faith is a feminine And they weren't gender confused about their nouns and relative pronouns. A neuter has to refer back to either A, a neuter noun, or B, a phrase composed of nouns that are of different genders. And so we have mixed genders here. Salvation is masculine, grace, and faith are feminine. Okay? Okay. So the pronoun that refers back to him has to be neuter. So it's referring to the whole phrase. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that by grace through faith salvation is not of yourselves. It is the uh, But <clears throat> this salvation by grace through faith is the gift of God. The whole package, the whole phrase is the gift of God. It's a by grace through faith salvation. And then verse 9, it is... Not of works, not from works, not from the source of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, this isn't the only place that makes that point in Scripture. There are a number of others, and I'm just going to point out Titus 3.5, which says, it starts off this way, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, His grace, Mercy is grace in action. That's that by grace through faith salvation Paul mentioned in Ephesians two eight, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Through the washing of regeneration, even the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That excludes works. So some people may say, well then I can just do whatever I want to do. Well, some people do that. Are they still saved? Yeah. They're just taking advantage of God's grace, and they don't understand what comes next in verse 10. But Romans 4, 5, before we get to verse 10, says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. A lot we could say about that, but the point I'm making is these are verses that tell us that it, our salvation does not depend in any way on our morality, our immorality, our involvement in church or in ritual or in going through the motions of Bible reading and prayer It has to do with only one thing, and that is what we think about Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, that there he died and paid the penalty in full for all sin. He didn't forget one. He didn't say, I'm going to die for every sin uh, except for the one where a person believes in me, and then he decides not to anymore. He doesn't say that. He paid for every sin. In God's omniscience, he didn't forget one. He didn't go, oh, man, I forgot to put your specific sin onto Jesus on the cross. Every one of them was paid for. It's not by our work, it's his work. And we trust in him. That's what Romans 4, 5 is talking about. We're believing on him who justifies the ungodly. We don't get ourselves justified by our own works. But what's the purpose, then, then of that salvation? God has a purpose in saving us, not just because he can have your wonderful presence with him for all eternity. You may be a wonderful, nice person. You may be just a horrible person, but that has nothing to do with whether or not God wants you in heaven. He has a purpose. We are his craftsmanship. We are his masterpiece. That's how that word should be translated. We refers to the church, those who are in Christ. So if you trust in Christ, you are placed into Christ in this new body called the church. It's later on in Ephesians 2. We're called a new man, a new body, a new, uh, a new temple, and a new building. There's something absolutely new about what happened from the day of Pentecost after the cross... There came into being this new entity called the church. And the purpose of being in Christ is so that God can develop you, enable you to grow spiritually, and to produce good works. Good works are only a result of salvation, but they are not necessarily a result of salvation. Why did I say that? Because some people say that if you are truly saved, you will produce good works, and then they have some sort of metric for evaluating whether you have the right kind of works. And if you don't have the right kind of works, then maybe you weren't saved. And they'll go on and say, no, you weren't really saved. You just thought you believed in Jesus, but you really didn't. Because if you did, you'd have the right kind of works. But that's not what this is saying. It's saying simply that we are saved by works, but we're saved for the potential of producing good works. Now, good works don't come be automatically because we're a new creature in Christ. That's our legal position. They don't, it doesn't come automatically because we're regenerate. That's what some people believe, that regeneration somehow minimizes the kinds of sins you can uh, commit. That's a shallow view of sin and an unbiblical view of regeneration. What it means by regeneration, a new creature in Christ, is that the sin nature is no longer our master. We have a choice. And many Christians are warned by Paul in Romans 6 that we are to not make ourselves slaves again to the sin nature. That doesn't mean that we lose our salvation. It's just like somebody who might, let's say, they have grown up under communism In China, and after years of being under a totalitarian dictatorship where they had absolutely no freedom whatsoever, they come to the United States, and at first they sort of enjoy it, but then they don't like freedom, and they really want to live like they did when they were under a totalitarian government. A lot of Christians do that. They're really comfortable with their sin nature, and they're comfortable with their sins, they make them feel good. And they're uh, comfortable with the way they react with emotional sins and the way they commit certain overt sins makes them feel like they're alive. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says you're just going back, putting yourself back under the authority of your sin nature, and you don't have to. You can live under freedom because, as Paul says in Galatians 5, it was for freedom that Christ set us free, free from the sin nature not free from its presence, but free from its power. So that now we can choose not to follow the sin nature and walk by the Spirit. And those are the options that are set in Scripture. Now, the problem we've got here after we look at all of this is that if you believe you can do something to lose your salvation, that you can commit some sin, and you committed some sin that just shocked you, or you went through a time in college where you were under the influence of liberal, pagan, atheistic uh, professors and you denied Christ for a time. You think you've committed an unforgivable sin. No, you haven't. There's a lot of Christians, there's a huge number of Christians who have gone through those kinds of struggles as they have uh, been growing up as a believer, but if you believe that you can do something that Christ didn't pay for, if you believe you can do something that God did not know about in eternity past, if you believe you can do something that shocked God and he didn't actually uh, have Christ pay for on the cross, then what is hidden in your presupposition is that you did something to be saved. Because if you believe you can do something to lose your salvation, hidden away somewhere in your thinking is the idea that you you did something to get your salvation. So we have to recognize that Scripture says Christ did it all. It's emphasized in the 19th chapter of John that John says, to make it clear, he says, when it was completed. And it uses the same form of the Greek verb, a perfect tense, which emphasizes the completion of the action in past time. It means paid in full. When it was paid in full, Jesus said it is paid in full. It's repeated so that we can't miss it. All right. So what we're going to see again is what we've seen now. Salvation is not by works, but it's for good works. And now we're going to see that we're evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ, but we're not evaluated to see if we trusted Christ. We're evaluated for good works. What kind of works did we have? Did we have works that were the result of walking by means of the Spirit, or did we just have good works that showed the same kind of morality as the rest of the Gentiles? And then we're going to see that all are saved eternally, but not all receive rewards. And last, that all run the race. Those who are disqualified are not those who lost salvation, but those who didn't walk by the Spirit so that they could be rewarded. So that is why we're looking at these skills. Good works are not inevitable. After being saved, we must decide to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ every day, every hour of every day, every minute of every hour of every day. We constantly have that choice before us. Am I going to continue to grow and trust God and use what he has given me to handle the issues of life, or am I going to just keep on trying to solve my problems the same way I always tried to solve my problems? So that's what we have been looking at. Second thing we need to remember is that regeneration that is being born again does not minimize our sin nature. Well, I was pretty lustful before I was saved, I'm not going to be quite as lustful after I'm saved. No. Cuz our walk is determined by what we take in in terms of the word of God. So if nobody ever teaches you anything that from the word of God, you don't have anything to apply. And applying the Word of God is the basis for spiritual growth as you apply it by walking by the Spirit. So regeneration just gives us a new identity and a new relationship to God where we are no longer under the tyranny of the sin nature. So these spiritual skills are needed to control the sin nature. Now, one of the things I want to point out before we go forward Looking back at our passage in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, there is something said just prior to that in Ephesians 2, 4. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Notice it's all about God. It is he's rich in mercy. He has great love with which he loved us. And then verse five says, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, even when we were sinners, even when we were obnoxious to him in every way possible, he made us alive together with Christ. Now, who does the us describe? To whom does that refer? As we studied in Ephesians, there are these pronouns that are important. When Paul is talking at the beginning about we, he is talking about we Jews who were first saved. He says in chapter 1, verse 11, "...in him," that is, in Christ also, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined or being appointed according to the purpose of him who works all things." And then he describes the we in verse 12. He says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And then in verse 13, it says, in him you also trusted. So the we refers to we Jews who first trusted in Christ, and the you refers to you Gentiles who later trusted in Christ. And then by the time you get to the first part of verse 2, He changes the we to describe you and us, we Jew and Gentile together in Christ. So that's what he means in verse uh, five when he says, "Even when we Jew and Gentile were both were dead in trespasses, he made us alive what together, Jew and Gentile. Before it was you Gentiles and we Jews, now it is us." Together, in this new body, that's what he develops in the second half of the chapter. He has made us alive together in with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places. That's our identity. Now, I don't know how people can understand that passage or read that passage and not realize that what happens at salvation is that you are made alive together with Christ, raised together, and seated together with Christ in the heavenlies. How in the world can God undo that? By taking away your salvation. See, people who say, well, you can lose your salvation, don't understand what God did in saving you. He made you a new creature in Christ. We are His workmanship, His masterpiece. He's not going to turn around and cut it to shreds. He's not going to pick up a can of black paint and pour it all over his masterpiece. You can't lose your salvation because you didn't do anything to gain it. So in this terms of the spiritual skills, what we've seen is that God is our fortress, and we're using that as a metaphor for this spiritual fortress that is built in our soul. And... In order to enter into this fortress, we have to trust in Christ. So we, I mean, we have to confess sin. So after we've trusted in Christ, we confess sin and we go into the fortress. And the uh, automatic response to that is that we, um, we are filled by means of God, the Holy Spirit. And then we have to learn how to walk. And we've go, gone through these sp- various uh, skills of faith rest drill uh, grace orientation or aligning our lives with the grace policy of God, and then lastly we did doctrinal orientation, aligning ourselves to the teaching of Scripture. Now today we're going to start on the next one, which is really transitional ones. Those first five really are what we have to master in spiritual childhood. That doesn't mean we master them completely, so even when you're a fairly mature believer, you, you, at times you're thinking, I just don't think I've ever really learned the faith rest drill. We all have days like that. doesn't mean you're immature. It just means we, we always have things to master. So that's, that's basically the skills that underlay the more advanced skills. And I call the, the personal sense of our eternal destiny a transitional skill. It's like adolescence. When you were a kid, if you can remember back that far... I suspect that everyone here remembers a time when you got sort of irritated at something your parents wouldn't let you do and you said or thought, I just wish you'd treat me like an adult. We all recognize that life, in terms of our physical life, physical growth, really began when we were grown. We wanted to be treated like a grown-up. We wanted to be treated like someone who was mature, an adult. Christians don't think that way. Christians want to stay in the, in, in the nursery sucking on a bottle and not growing up. But see, in the same way that physical life, we want to grow up and be treated as a mature adult, and we know that that's where real life is the real enjoyment of life, the same thing is true in the Christian life. We've got to transition. In the personal sense of our eternal destiny, we're beginning to learn to put off gratification. We're living in light of eternity. Kids want to see, they want gratification right now from whatever it is they see. But as you grow older, you're able to postpone gratification. You make decisions based on long-term goals rather than just how it makes me feel today. And that is a sign that you're maturing. So that's what we're talking about, living in light of eternity just as today. If you're in college, you have a degree that you're seeking, and so you're working toward earning that degree, and so certain things are becoming, beginning to become distractions to earning that degree, so you realize you have to exclude those from your life. Same thing as you're an adult, you get a job, you have a career path, something you want to do and achieve, and you realize that to do certain things, uh, certain things will be a distraction to achieving what you want to achieve. That's what I mean by uh, living in light of eternity, living in light of what is going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ. That's our destiny. So what I've done here is I've looked at these different spiritual skills, and these first, the first five began to develop that wall, that protection of God's soul fortress. Now we're at the personal sense of our eternal destiny. And after that, we start getting into the more mature qualities that we use. They're based on the other ones so that there is a lot of development. Basically, what I'm talking about is as we abide in Christ, as we walk in the light, as we walk by the Holy Spirit, uh, we stay inside this soul fortress. These skills are how we stay there. And it's all dependent on our volition. So we've had this spiritual childhood, which the Apostle John calls ch- uh, childhood uh, using the word technion, that's it. That lays the, that lays the, the first floor, as it were, above the foundation, the foundation being Christ. And then we come, we see that these three, the faith rest, real grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation, all interact together. They're mutually dependent. So it's a dynamic thing, and then we develop this personal sense of our eternal destiny. So, what is it? Number one, the destiny of every believer is to rule and reign with our Lord Jesus Christ when he establishes his kingdom at the second coming. He will return to the earth and establish what is referred to as the millennial kingdom, which describes its length of 1,000 years. Or he will rule and reign in the messianic kingdom because it's the fulfillment of those Uh, prophecies in the old testament that the son of david will establish uh, israel and it will be a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity it doesn't give the length but uh, uh, revelation 20 does prior to that every believer will be evaluated for rewards and responsibilities we're going to rule and reign with christ what determines our position in ruling and reigning with Christ is how well we develop the capacity for serving Him in this life. We do that by growing spiritually. So therefore, we must learn to live in light of that future destiny. First Peter 1.17 says, And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges or evaluates you according to each one's, what? Work. See, now we see the role work plays. It has to do with this evaluation. So what are we to do? Conduct ourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Because Revelation twenty two twelve tells us, Jesus is speaking and says, "...and behold, I am coming quickly." And my reward is with you. Now, salvation is a gift. Rewards are based on work. So salvation is not a reward for what we have done, but we're going to get rewards, and that's based on our works. My reward is with me to give to everyone, what? According to his work. So there's a place for work. But you have to understand what that work actually describes. So as we saw in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, it's based on this new position in Christ that we have been made alive together with Christ, we have been raised up together, and we've been seated together in Him. That's our position. We're in Christ. We are royalty in Christ. We are in the royal family of God and we have a future destiny to rule and reign with him. So what we see is that all believers in Christ will be saved. They will be raptured when Christ returns in the air at the end of the church age before the seven-year tribulation. And we will be with Christ and serve with Christ When he returns to establish his kingdom, we are rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ, which is for believers only, immediately following the rapture. Second, however, there are many believers in Christ who will have few, if any, responsibilities in the future, though they will be in heaven. They don't gain any rewards. Rewards are based on developing your capacity to serve Christ now when it's difficult. Colossians 3.24 says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Inheritance has to do with possession of those uh, rewards that he gives us. Why? For you serve the lord christ we have to develop that capacity to serve him and we can't serve him if we don't know his will and his word you know people don't know the bible they they don't know the mind of christ first corinthians two sixteen says for we have the mind of christ so if you're going to serve somebody if you're going to go to work for an employer you have to find out what is going to please that employer and what you must do in order to make your employer more successful. If you don't learn that, you're probably not going to last very long in your job, and at the very least, you're just not going to get a pay raise or get any kind of promotion, at least the way things used to be. So we go to 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. Therefore, we make it our aim. Whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him. Who does? The, to whom does the "we" refer? That refers to believers. Paul is talking about believers in the church he's writing to. That is the Corinthians, and we know that the Corinthians are made up of some pretty arrogant people. They've been pretty divisive. They committed a a lot of horrible sins, for which they were uh, roundly rebuked in the first letter to the corinthians you would not want to be a part of that church they did not have they they you might have if you're a licentious person you really might want to be part of that church because they used to gather around the lord's table and use as an opportunity to have a drunken orgy but that's not what we're supposed to do as believers 5.10 5.10 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body. We're going to receive something for what we did in this life according to what we have done, for whether we walked by means of the Spirit and produced the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit produced the fruit, according, or whether bad, walking according to the sin nature. 1 Corinthians three ten says, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. Paul laid the foundation. How did he do that? He told them the gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead. By trusting in Christ alone, you have salvation. That's the foundation. And then he says, let each one, that's each individual believer in the context, not each individual human, but each individual believer, because building is work, so we're not saved by work. So this is for the believer after he's saved. Take heed how you build on that foundation. The building of something on that foundation is what you and I build with our lives. The character that is built in us by walking by the Spirit, it's the character of Christ. Now, you can build with six different kinds of building materials. Three of them are of value because they can endure just about any kind of heat or destructive element. Gold, silver, precious stones... But the other three elements can easily be destroyed or burned up, and they're pretty much worthless, wood, hay, and straw. So what he is saying is that we build in our lives things that are that have eternal value. That's produced by walking by the Spirit. And we produce some things in our lives that look the same. You know, you can get up in the morning, read your Bible, tell your neighbor about Jesus Christ and do it all in the power of the flesh because it's all about you and it's all about what you're accomplishing for the Lord. That's your goal and objective. It's all arrogance. That's the work of the flesh. So it doesn't have eternal value. The guy across the street wakes up in the morning, makes sure he's in right relationship with the Lord, and he reads his Bible he prays and he talks to his neighbor about the Lord Jesus Christ and it's God, the Holy Spirit working through him and that has eternal value. You and I can't look at a person and decide what of that person's life is gold, silver, precious stones and what is wood, hay and straw. Not only can we not look at another person's life and determine that, we can't even look at our own life and determine that. Only God and his omniscience can determine that. And that's the basis for the judgment seat of Christ. So it will be made evident. That's verse 13. Each one's work will become clear. It will be made evident. For the day will declare it. What day? That is the day of the judgment seat of Christ. Because it will be revealed by fire. Now this is just a metaphor. Because when you are uh, smelting uh, metallic ores... You use intense heat in order to burn off the impurities. What is left is that which is of value. See, God's not exposing the wood, hay, and straw. He's exposing the good, I mean the gold, the silver, and the precious stones. And that's what is revealed. It's going to be tested. Now, this word runs all the way through here. This is a word uh uh docimazo. And we'll see that in a minute. It's an evaluation. It's for approval. We're going to see it when we come to the next passage again. It's a very important word. And then he says, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. So we're rewarded for work. But then he says, if anyone's work is burned up, so you have a believer there and God piles up all of his Uh, good works all of his life strikes a match and just and it's all gone he doesn't lose his salvation he just doesn't have anything that's rewardable and notice what it says if anyone's work is burned he will suffer the loss of salvation does it say that? no it doesn't but people read that into it even though the next verse, the next part of the verse says, "But he himself will be saved." So there are going to be people in heaven who are saved, but they have no rewards because they never developed a capacity for serving the Lord by learning His Word. Another analogy is used in 1 Corinthians nine twenty four to twenty seven. See what's going on here is Paul's trying to motivate these carnal, sinful. Rebellious, arrogant, licentious Corinthians to start growing as believers. So he uses another analogy, that of a, a race. Now, now the point is, the race isn't to decide who will get to heaven and who will won't. Who won't? That would be works. The race is analogous to a person's life. Those who run the race are believers. And so Paul says, we run in a race, uh, he says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, that is, they're all believers, all run, but one receives the prize. The prize is a reward. It's a reward for work. It's a reward for training, for keeping your focus, for living in light of the end goal. One uh, receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain the prize. In other words, live your life in such a way that you earn earn those rewards. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it. Talking, he's using the analogy of the uh, Olympics because they had Olympics near Corinth at the. They were called the Isthmian Games because of the Corinthian isthmus right near them. There were also the Delphi games and the Pythian games and all these other games. But uh, he's using that analogy. And if they won, they would receive some sort of wreath. But it was made out of something that would would perish. It was made out of either oak leaves or laurel leaves or some other sort of plant, but it would soon wither and dry up and go away. So they worked that hard for something that's not going to last. Of course, they got other benefits besides just the crown. But we for an imperishable crown. Now, this term crown for crowns here is Stephanos. It's not diademos, a diadem. It is an imp, uh, 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 reward for effort, and it's used many times in Scripture to describe different kinds of rewards that believers will receive. So Paul draws a conclusion. Therefore, I'm going to run my life in this way, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not like somebody who's just beating the air, but I discipline my body. I always remember this because the old King James had said, I buffet my body, I beat my body. I remember a student in seminary was given an exegetical paper assignment and he had to teach on the passage in Ephesians chapter 5, that the husband was to love his wife like his own body. And he started off by saying we have to be careful how to compare Scripture with Scripture because in 1 Corinthians 9 said Paul beat his body into submission. And over in Ephesians 5 it says to love your wife like your own body. Now that, that's an ir- that's a wrong way of making Scripture com- comparisons. We are not to beat our wife into submission. So he says, I beat my body into submission, I discipline my body, and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Not disqualified from salvation, that would be works, but disqualified from winning the prize, the reward. So that takes us back to what we've been saying about 2 Corinthians 5 10, all these other passages uh, elucidate that. They describe that. And so we come to the end of the passage, so I'm going to go down here, and we learn that there are different kinds of believers. There are those that are going to, there are those who are going to be rewarded and those who will not be rewarded, and we have to ask ourselves, so which group will I be in? When we are applying this principle of living today in light of eternity, what we're living today in light of is the fact that we will be evaluated, not for salvation. That's already done if we've trusted Christ as Savior. But we will be evaluated in terms of how we have grown. Have we walked by the Spirit? Galatians 5.16 Of we walked by the sin nature? If you walk by the sin nature, there are certain sins that become evident in life that characterize your life, and those are listed there uh, in the verses that follow, in verses uh, 18, 19, and 20. But if you're walking by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to produce certain character qualities in us, and that's called the fruit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's one fruit with many Dimensions, many aspects, many facets to it. It's the character of Christ, and so we learn to serve the Lord. We learn by learning His Word. We have to study His Word. We have to read it, read it frequently. Story is told of uh, an encounter that Reuben A. Torrey had with a man in his congregation. Doctor Torrey is well known. He was. Uh, uh, the, I think it was the founding president of Biola, which is the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. He'd gone to Moody Bible Institute. Isn't that right, Jim? Gone to Moody Bible Institute. And a man came up and he said, Dr. Torrey, you're always telling us to read the Bible, but the Bible is so boring. It's dry as dust. I can't figure it out. I read all those genealogies and I read these other things. I don't have a clue what's going on. And what, what should I do? Dr. Torrey said, read it some more. What do you mean read it some more? Read it some more. Read it a lot more. He said, uh, I don't have time to read it more. He says, I'm a busy man. I, I own my own company. Dr. Torrey said, well, let's t- take a short book. Take Second Peter, three chapters. I want you to read it 12 times a day. 12 times a day. How do I have time to do that? Make the time. So he came back a few weeks later and he said, "Well, Dr. Tory, I've been reading, my wife and I have been reading 2nd Peter together 12 times a day. We read it four times at breakfast, four times at lunch, four times at dinner." After about a week, I was dreaming about 2nd Peter. That's all I could talk about was what I was learning in 2nd Peter. I told my wife, I I, I told her, I said, I can't believe what what I have learned after a month of reading 2 Peter 12 times a day. He says, your life shows it. Your life used to be pretty black, and now it's white. Because what you have done is inculcate the Word of God, and it's transformed you. That is how we learn to grow as believers. It's what we learned the last couple of lessons in doctrinal orientation. We have to get into the Word, and let the Word of God get into us. And what that happens is it transforms our thinking so that we're thinking in light of where we're headed in eternity. And we need to learn to live today in light of eternity. So we'll come back next Sunday, and we will look at this in terms of some other aspects of it. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful we have such revelation that it informs us about our future destiny as believers and that we have a responsibility today to walk by the Holy Spirit, to live for you, to serve you. It is our responsibility today to learn your word that we are to desire the unadulterated milk of the word that we may grow by it. We are to grow by the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we begin to look forward to when we will be with him. And we know that we will be evaluated and we do not want to be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. Not that we will lose salvation, but that we will not have those uh, rewards and responsibilities that we could have because we haven't really learned how to serve you. Now is the opportunity to do that. So, Father, I pray that all of us would recognize that we all have a long way to go in terms of how to serve you. Some are maybe an inch or two down the road. Some are maybe five or six inches down the road, but it's a long road, and we have miles to go. So, Father, we pray that we might be challenged by what we studied today. Father, we pray for anyone who's here who's never trusted in Christ as Savior. We pray that they will not be confused by uh, grace or by works. The salvation is not because of what you've done or haven't done. Salvation is based on what Jesus Christ did for you at the cross. He died for you. He died in your place. He paid the penalty for your sins because you can't do it. And we all have to get to that point where we recognize that, Lord, There's nothing I can do for salvation. I trust in you and you alone because Christ paid for my sins. And because they are paid for, I trust you to give me eternal life for his behalf. That's it. That's the gospel. So, Father, we pray that you would make that clear to anyone here who has never trusted you as Savior. And for the rest of us, we may be challenged to go forward in our spiritual growth.